Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Microphone was supplied by Magic Matt Allen, who also produces the program. I am the legendary Burl Bear, man sitting next to me, Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker. The enthusiast. Hey, Ken Urell. Hey, there he is, the man, the man best known for a lack of ethics. <laughs> that must be a heartbreaker. I'll tell you, boy. I apologize for uh, the first, the first. Uh, Thing I set up for you guys fell through, so here I am standing in. Yeah, well, that's okay. It goes to show you are a stand-up guy, even if you're sitting down. <laughs> that's true. Now, I, I asked you this a couple of years ago. But I'm going to ask it to you again. You ever wake up in the middle of the night or in the morning and go, "I really screwed up." Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't have to wake up to do that. I could, t- I could tell that from being just awake. <laughs> just, I mean, are you haunted? I interviewed uh, a woman who had dated a serial killer one time. I said, looking back now, how do you feel? And she said, haunted. Do you ever feel haunted by your past? Uh, I don't feel haunted, but I, I definitely feel a lot of uh, regret. That's for sure. But in the process, did it turn you around in your heart, in your soul, in your head, morally, ethically, whatever? Oh, absolutely. I, I'm not ever going to be involved in any more crimes. I haven't since then. You know, we're talking almost 30 years, so. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it, it's not something I will uh, let myself be led into by temptation. So you're not going to say, to go, boy, I can't wait for my next opportunity to do something corrupt. <laughs> I, I purposely steer myself away from these things. Well, that's great. I had the feeling of that, but you know, people who are hearing the show for the first time, we better let people, some people know who you are. What a concept! If, yeah. If we, if we don't learn, if we don't learn our lessons from our past, we, we never grow. So. No. You're doomed to repeat them. That's yeah. why this show exactly. sounds like the ones I did 13 years ago. <laughs> I've read some of the reviews of this program that are like I do. They go, do they do this show from a loading dock? <laughs> <laughs> the doors creaking, things crashing, people eating their lunch. We're doing the show from Matt Allen's Lighting Up Lounge. There you go. Which is a 1876 Virginia City-style bar built in Matt Allen's backyard. It's got real booze in it, too. Not lots. And if this was a real radio station, we'd be in violation of FCC regulations. Hmm. But we're not, so we don't care. <laughs> so much for the FCC. Right. Um, I find that quite odd, considering the amount of cocaine that has been consumed in radio stations over the years. Well, there's nothing in the FCC regulations about cocaine. It merely says you can't get drunk on the air. Ah. Unless it's for a public service. Oh, Mark and Brian did that every, you know, once a year. <laughs> their drunk show. Yeah. Now you know that's not true. Well, that, that was the old way that everyone, all the, uh, hold on, hold on a second, Kev. control the transmitter. Ah. As an Air Force editor, you can do whatever the hell you want. Uh, but, uh, is this a new rule? No. No. Forever. Now, when I you took my... Drink, you can do anything you want. Now, when I took my FCC test... That was different. That was back in the old days. 1922. <laughs> wow. I didn't take my test in 1922. 
Was well, no, it was 23. Okay. So why don't you tell us about our guest, Burl? This is Ken Jarrell, who one time he was champion of the world. No, one time he was the second most corrupt cop in the contemporary history of the New York Police Department. <coughs> Number one was his partner, Michael Dowd. Number three would be, uh, what's his name? Uh, Corleone. No, uh. Well, I think I Serpico. No, no, no. He wasn't corrupt. That was the no, point. No, that one he was going after. Oh well, no, 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 no. Oh, Chili Pippen, Chili Pippen in uh, New, uh, New Jersey. Yeah, Chili Pippen in New Jersey, and he posts a lot on our page. Nice guy too. And they don't hassle him because he still no, he still has the dirt on people. But Ken Jarrell got in a lot of trouble eventually. He and his uh, let me get make sure I got this right. You're making thirteen thousand a year approximately as a New York police cop, and about uh, eight thousand a week providing protection for the Dominican <laughs> drug cartel. No, the, the first first year out of the academy, I was making about nineteen thousand. Oh, a good. Little more. And how much were you making from uh, the Dominican drug cartel? Uh, that would have to be eight thousand a week, whole hmm. lot cash. Oh boy, and that's without all the side jobs. That's nice. <laughs> Now with that kind of money, you could buy a new house, you could buy a fancy car, but if you buy bought, a lot of things, but if you but if you did that, wouldn't people notice? I don't think people really care. <laughs> they didn't care. They didn't. Someone at the MIT go, gee, you know, Ken Urell is driving a. Uh, $40,000 car, and he just bought himself a new house. How's he doing this on what we pay him? Or did they know? You know, you know, everybody buys a house, you know, you get a 20, 30 year mortgage, and no one thinks twice about how much money you put down or uh, how much your mortgage really is. So. so no one really batted an eye. I noticed in the promo. Yeah, and, and then, you know, with the cars, at least I was, uh, you know, they were, it was heading out on Long Island. It's not like I drove them to work. Yeah. You, you buy an old beat-up car and you drive it to work. But when you're not at work, <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can drive the uh, the fancy-ass car and the nice clothes, go on nice vacations. <coughs> Pardon me. <laughs> Burrow is choking to death. <laughs> you're good. Don't die on air, Burrow. No, I tried not to. Uh, did it ever bother you that you were num you were only the second most corrupt cop? Yeah, in you want to go for number one? No, I, this is one area where I did not correct to be number one. Well, I was always kind of impressed by the fact that the key to your success at being the criminal element was similar to that of Adam Diaz, and that is you were very reliable. You must be honest. Yeah, with, 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 you know, you try to treat it like a business and not not be uh, not be on the customer anymore. So, well, yeah, that's but, like, uh, during that's the, uh, during alcohol prohibition, they made a point of not killing the customers. You know, exactly. <laughs> they may have had wars between the various gangs on who's going to control the alcohol, but they didn't. You didn't want to hurt the customers. Exactly. You know, when I, when I was selling cocaine to people I knew, I did not get high with them. <laughs> yeah. Good thinking. 
<laughs> what was that in Scarface? Never get high on your own supply? Exactly. And never underestimate the greed of the other guy. Just, <laughs> just like radio. Never get high at all. <laughs> so there you were making all this money. And if I read your book correctly, which is an excellent book, by the way, Betrayal in Blue, uh, the NYPD, after a while, knew what was going on. They knew you were up to no good. But they let you keep doing it because they didn't want another scandal. Right. There was a, there was a scandal that broke out uh, a couple of years prior to our arrest. The scandal was in 87 from the uh, 7th and Fiction to like 13 cops arrested. And then uh, they had an inkling of what was going on with us and they just depressed it. And we didn't get arrested until 1992 when it was by a totally different police department. Yeah, a lot on Long Island. Yep. So we got we actually got arrested for selling cocaine on Long Island, not for the corrupt acts we were doing as cops in Brooklyn. And actually, you weren't in the NYPD then. Yeah, yeah. I was. I was gone. I had retired. I left the department. You probably thought you were pretty much home free by then. Or were you worried? No, I never thought I was home free. So it was always in the back of your mind? As, uh... It was always in the back of my mind. It was just one day going to all fall apart. I tried to get out multiple times, and then, you know, other people come over, and they want to make deals, and the greed takes over, and you get back involved again. Yep. Now, you, once... know, you say, hey, let, me, let me try this one more time, and you get in thinking you're going to get out, and start yeah. all over again. Yeah, that's just like a Godfather 3. Every time I'm about to pull me back in. Yep. Now, once you and Michael were arrested, you were arrested about the same time. Correct. We were, uh, he, was, he was actually arrested with his new partner at work. And I was uh, arrested out on Long Island. Same, same day, same night, May 6th, 1992. And uh, there were a couple of cops from another priest and also arrested. There were like seven of us all together. They raided all our homes at the same time. They raided all, all the drug locations, and all these cops were at their precincts while they were working. Well, that must have been an exciting day. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Depending on what side you were on. <laughs> what side you were on. You found it rather depressing, I'm sure. Exactly. I try to forget it, but the, the book and the, the movie keeps bringing it back up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there's a kind of a lot of misunderstandings because of the the documentary the seven five gives somewhat of an erroneous impression that you somehow uh ratted out um uh, your partner, but you didn't. That kinda of pissed me off about the uh uh documentary. It gives that impression it doesn't say it. It gives that impression. Yeah, the way the way it edited and cut it made it look like I was arrested by myself and then IAD and the DEA flipped me and sent me back out in the street. That's not what happened. No, not at all. We were all arrested at the, we all arrested at the same time. And while we were out on bail, there was another whole plan that my partner came up with with the drug dealers that were living in this house that I never met. And then uh, tried to get me involved in it, and I didn't want to be involved in it. And then that's when I went to the DEA and uh, the Southern District in the U.S. Attorney's Office. They can't be involved in this because they're talking about kidnapping and killing a woman. No, that, that's not a good idea. Kidnapping and killing <laughs> no. is never a wise choice. Exactly. Now, the thing about being a 
a CI, if they handle it, that's confidential informant, is different than being a cooperating witness. Big difference. If you're going to be, I, su- I suppose, you know, legally and uh, by, by the by the eyes of the U.S. Attorney's uh, Office, there it is. But by uh, all the regular people, I, I guess they uh, don't like that. They uh, cooperate and witness, and uh, I guess somebody who's informant uh, <clears throat> at the same time. So, a big difference. But I, I challenge anyone that was in my position to not become a uh, cooperating witness. Well, cooperating witness, if they grill you like a swordfish, which they did, if you tell one lie, if you hold back one bit of information, you're screwed. Yeah, if you hold back anything, you're uh, whole. It's not really a deal. It's not like they promise you a certain amount of time. You go in and they all they offer you is we will write a letter to the sentencing judge based on your sense of your cooperation. But if they catch you in any lie, and there's other witnesses that cooperate, so if you have anything contradicting with the other witnesses, they don't write the letter no more, and you just, you know, you're thrown back out in the fire. Well, Which is basically what happened to my partner, because my partner went in and tried to deal with them, and then he got caught in multiple lies. That's not a good idea. <laughs> you don't lie. <laughs> if you're in trouble for lying, don't lie about it. Yeah, exactly. Now, with confidential informants, they're just regular snitches, and you can't believe a word they say most of the time. Yeah, a confidential informant is somebody who gets arrested all on his own, and then they flip him and turn him back out into the street. Right. And then sooner or later, they, they lock him up, too, but they screw with him in the meantime. Yeah, probably. I mean, yeah. You wouldn't know because you've never been one, thank God. Exactly. There's a big difference. You know, the lines blur in the eyes of the public. Yeah, public usually doesn't know the difference. Uh, Frank and I are doing a book right now. Makes the distinction very clear. Uh, showing the difference between a, uh, got a lot of information on <coughs> confidential informants, snitches, snitches to the DEA, snitches to the FBI. Sure. How they're supposed to be treated, how they are treated, what they're supposed to do, what they're not supposed to do. What they let them get away with, what they're not supposed to let them get away with. It's a real mess. And, uh, that's, that's what you But uh, that's, uh, we're exposing all that in our new book. We should be both, uh, we hope it'll be entertaining and controversial. I think you'll get a kick sure. out of it. That would be uh, Frank C. Gerardo Jr., correct? Yes, the brilliant and talented Frank C. Gerardo Jr., who's an absolute pleasure to work with. Boy, did I hit the <laughs> jackpot with him. <laughs> I'll tell you, talk about working with a partner. You not don't know what you're going to get. I mean, I, I I selected him. I asked him, came to him, didn't really know him, but I was familiar with his work. And uh, I asked him, I said, hey, would you like to do this? You know, work together on a book. And he said, yeah. Boy, am I glad he said yes. Yeah, and then uh, it led into multiple books for you guys. Yeah, so oh, great. yeah. And it's a, it's a great relationship. People say, how do you work together? We say, we we really don't. We've never sat down together in the same room to write. He'll say, write this, Burl. I'll say, write this, Frank. And he'll write it, and I'll write it. And somehow we glue it together, and it works. So we're, right. not, we're, we're not complaining. <laughs> what was the uh, first book you guys did, A Taste for Murder? 
That's a good question. We actually, we did a couple of tiny things. You know, like uh, short stuff. Uh, right. Uh, just kind of testing the waters. And then, uh, yeah, we did a taste, taste for Murder and Betrayal in Blue about the same time. Well, we did Taste for Murder first, I think. And then a Betrayal in Blue with you. <clears throat> I have a taste for Pepsi. Is that the same thing? Yeah, I have a taste for fried chicken. It's a little different. I see. <laughs> Did you run into, um, other than your partner, did you run into other cops that were, uh, shall, we, shall we say, less than honest? Yes, absolutely. Like the cops the cop that I got arrested with us that night from the other precincts. I knew them all. I had dealings with all of them. Now you, do a, so, you do a great show on YouTube. You have a lot of these other corrupt cops sure, on. I, I started a YouTube channel. It's uh, under my name. Just look it up. Kenurel, K-E-N-E-U-R-E-L-L. And it's about... Um, a, lot, a lot is a Q&A that people send in. They want to know about my life and my clients. So I give a little bit of that. And then I'll look up uh, either past corrupt police, you know, police corruption from years back or current. Surprisingly, there's a lot of current police corruption going on right now. And uh, you, you think people would learn, but they don't. And it, it's way beyond the things that we do. Like, I think there's cops out there just committing rapes and murders. A couple of past shows I had uh, talked about the cop that did a murder. He was um, dating a female, and uh, he had broken up with him and met a new guy. And then this cop drove his patrol car while he's on duty, kidnapped the new boyfriend, got him in the back of the car, and killed him right in the postal car. Now, I don't know how he thought he was going to get away with that. I take it he didn't get away with it. He did not get away with it. Obviously, that's how I know yeah, all about, about it. it. Right. And, and you would think some of these stories would be like big news, but you don't even hear about it. Like, I have to research deep to find them. Well, you know, you don't want to make the police look bad. <clears throat> I um, worked in the banking industry for almost 18 years. And I, um, I ran across dozens of uh, internal scandals, cheating, uh, the old, you know, shave the fractional portions of interest and book that to another account stuff. But they were never prosecuted. Right. Because the banks don't want the yeah, they don't public want to lose confidence. Yeah, saw the same thing in the hometown. Someone was embezzling from the city. Tons of money. Yep. And, uh, Public will lose confidence, so they, they keep it buried. Yeah, and when they found the person had embezzled, been embezzling money for years, they didn't have them arrested. No publicity. They just went, I'll bet you give the money back. But you don't do that anymore. Because, like, just as you say, people will lose confidence. Exactly. We don't want to lose confidence. You've had some pretty <laughs> uh, interesting characters on your show. Uh, and some pretty interesting situations. You had those cops. They were uh, the hit squad for the mob. <laughs> it's kind of peculiar. Right, the mafia cops. Yeah. Do you remember what the deal was on that? on the mafia cops. And then uh, there was another show I had. Uh, I did an interview with a retired Boston cop. 
who turned, uh, became a defense lawyer. So he told us the story about when he was a patrol cop back in the 80s. He had pulled over a car, and uh, the driver took out $500 from his wallet and offered it to him as a bribe to not to get the summons. And he thought about it for a quick second, and then he arrested the guy for bribery, and he brought him into the precinct. And when he was into the precinct, the uh, sergeant on the desk did did not uh, put kindly to him bringing in the bribery arrest nope. and sent him back out to check some other issue. And when he came back to the precinct, the prisoner was gone, the $500 was gone, everything disappeared. Uh-huh. <laughs> they just let him go. And they, they, told, they told him, and this is a direct line, you're not a real Boston cop if you can't take the money. Whoa. That's an interesting, so that was a, interesting job that requirement. Was a, yeah, I think that was episode three I did. So that, that went over real well. A lot of people like that episode. Oh, yeah, it went over real well in the law enforcement community, I'm sure. There was yeah, so, and now he's, now he's a defense lawyer. So he, sees a, he still sees a lot of that stuff. But he's on the other side fighting. There was the... Because, uh, you know, because he, he, I think he, he I, don't, I don't remember exactly. I think after the sergeant turned him away, he took it to IAD, and IAD told him the same thing. Wow. That's pretty bad. <laughs> I guess that yeah, far. Yeah, uh, a different, different time back then. Yeah. Yeah. There was the case in uh, Philadelphia where the uh, cops pulled over some uh, guy, you know, hassled him for driving while black. Uh, turns out the guy was like a senator or congressman or something. He was the wrong guy to pick on. And uh, turns out that in Philadelphia there's a group of like five cops who for years had been boosting their profile and reputation by planting evidence on people and arresting them. And it, one of the five had a, a flash of conscience and told the whole story. And there was over a thousand people they had to let out of prison. It had all been set oh, sure, up. Yeah. Once, once they uh, come down on a cop for making false arrests, they go back over his entire history. Yeah. Tom Selleck made a movie about that subject. Really? Two cops frame somebody, uh, <clears throat> and then when they get out of prison, they now own this person. Oh. Who did and they get, the, they get them to do all nefarious things in their name so that the cops don't get caught. Uh-huh. uh-huh. What a clever idea. <laughs> we should try that sometime. <laughs> I don't think police officers listen to any new ideas, please. Yeah. Well, this is an old movie. Yeah, but some of that stuff still works. <laughs> you know, I mean, people will watch movies. I mean, I actually saw this happen. These guys, I've told this story before, but we have some new listeners. I'm in Palm Springs, California. My car is parked in front of a jewelry store. And there's another car parked in front of the jewelry store because it's parked in front of the jewelry store in Palm Springs, Palm Canyon Avenue, whatever it's called. And as I'm getting into my car, out of the jewelry store, carrying the swag, are the guys who robbed the jewelry store. And they jump in their car in front of me and take off. (laughs) Not realizing it's rush hour on Palm Canyon Drive. And traffic's going about five miles an hour. <laughs> so they're making their getaway, going down Palm Canyon Boulevard, going five miles an hour. 
And I'm right behind him. I'm going, this should be entertaining. <laughs> he just robbed the jewelry store. What they did is they followed him on a helicopter. They drove all the way from Palm Springs back to L.A., went home with the swag, and that's when they arrested him. They just followed him all the way home and arrested him instead of doing it on the highway or, you know, doing it on the street. But that was so strange because what it is is they saw the movie City of Industry with Harvey Keitel, I think, where they rob a jewelry store. So they did it just like in the movie, except life isn't like the movies. <laughs> they just go, the, best movies come, the best movies come from real life. Yeah, but uh, movie, what's the news today will be movies for tomorrow. Yep. And, that's, uh, that's true. They followed the movie, but it didn't work <laughs> because the movie was fictional and real life wasn't. And uh, they got caught. Because I think the guys in the... Uh, in the movie, got caught too, but not as easily. You know, can't base everything on what you see in the movies. Like, well, uh, I find it fascinating that it, that in the movies, when reality is more interesting than what they can come up with fictionally, why don't they just tell the story as it happened? Well, because sometimes it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> but um, yeah, boy, that is a good point. But the reality is always more fascinating because it's more unbelievable. The things that people actually do or actually try to get away with or do get away with. You figure how many people, I mean, you're, you've been a cop, how many crimes do people actually get away with every day? A lot. Yeah. <laughs> you figure That's what? something you'll never be able to judge because they don't get caught. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, I know people who do that for a living. Been doing it every day for years. Sometimes uh, some of them will get caught. Sometimes they don't. Yeah. A lot of it has to do with keeping a, a low profile, I think. I've never done it myself. Never been a drug dealer. But, you know, I guess like anything else, people start getting used to doing something illegal. After a while, they think they've got a license to do it. <laughs> like they're exempt. <laughs> And so they figure. Yeah, I know. They, they do it for a while and they, they lapse. And that's how you get caught. And you make mistakes and you get caught. Yeah, they call that criminal pride. You start thinking that uh, they can't get caught. Not that there's a magical thing, but they get used to not being caught. They get more and more lazy about, you know. Yep, you get more, more brazen and, and then you're busted. Yep. That's what happens. Yeah, and I that applies to all criminals, not just, you know, the cops that turn criminals. It's always everybody. Yeah, and also the ones that, uh, that try to cheat the uh, the other partners. You know, they get sticky fingers in a deal, like uh, uh, Bugsy Siegel, you know. And his, well, actually, his girlfriend was doing the stealing. Yeah, he had sticky fingers, and not for the friendly reasons we would hope. Well, yeah. <clears throat> Bugsy was straight. His girlfriend was skimming off the budget for the uh, flamingo. Uh, and when uh, Bugsy got in charge of the money, didn't he? Well, when Bug, yeah, she she was she had several million dollars skimmed. Yeah. And when uh, Bugsy got, I uh, was murdered. Um, she immediately returned the funds and disappeared. And then she moved to Paris. <laughs> Didn't, yeah. didn't she die many years later under, like, mysterious circumstances? Yeah, I think Did she so. go to Sweden or something? Yeah. So where'd she go? Sweden, Siegel. Europe? Hang on, I'm, I'm trying to get there. Hang on. He's looking it up. But that does happen sometimes. Uh, 
You know, they were they got mad at um, at Bugsy because of the missing money. The flamingo was uh, lost two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Bugsy Siegel's girlfriend. Within uh, forty five days, he's redhead. Redhead woman. Virginia something, isn't it? Yeah. Virginia Hill. Yes. Yeah, Virginia Hill. Yeah. Yeah, I got my thrill on Virginia Hill. No, oh, that was very I always get those two confused. Yeah, why don't you go and jerk yourself off a of soda? <laughs> yeah, Bugsy. That was when Bugsy made his first pass at her. Yeah, that's what she said to him. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good line. Who wrote that for? Uh, anyway, did she die under unusual circumstances? I'm looking. He's looking that one up. Uh, I knew there was it, some reason. It says that, uh, here that yeah. she committed suicide, oh. uh, overdosing oh, on uh, sleeping pills. She overdosed on sleeping in pills in Salzburg, Austria. Salzburg, Austria, in 1966. 66. Boy, the Beatles were really hot then. She missed a lot of good music. <laughs> Tragic story. Yeah, they uh, shot Bugsy uh, in the eye and sat in the sat reading the newspaper. What a, what a shock. <laughs> Good shot. Yeah. The, the mistress committed suicide. Shocker. Yeah. I'm sure she did in uh, Salzburg, Austria. Hmm. Well, yeah. That, his partner, there, there was speculation that she that she was murdered, but no evidence of it. Meanwhile, Mickey Cohen, his partner, got away with just about everything. Uh, <clears throat> he was charged with various murders. He was acquitted of them. Uh, survived several assassination attempts. And uh, he even was on the cover of Life magazine. He posed for the pictures for the story. You know, <laughs> he didn't mind the publicity. I don't know what finally happened to Mickey Cohen. Did he die a natural death? Did they make him mayor of Beverly Hills? Well, what's an unnatural death? If someone shoots you, it's an unnatural death. <laughs> someone hits you with that with a brick, that's an unnatural death. Mickey Cohen? Yeah. Mickey Cohen. Famous gangster. I don't know if my folks ever met him or not. I hear his name come up every once in a while. But people really in uh, L.A. really loved Mickey Cohen. They thought he was cool. He kind of appealed to the uh, blue-collar mentality of a lot of working people in L.A. And uh, he kind of admired him. He had a a haberdashery, you know, a hat shop at Five Corners here in uh, L.A. in Hollywood, sold hats. And, uh, and, oh, someone was murdered in the front of the store. I was in the men's room at the time. <laughs> he, always had a, he always had an excuse. And he seemed to skate on everything. Gangsters yeah, back then had a movie store quality about them. Yep. And he did. He, uh, he had that kind of aura, and he had a lot of public support. People liked him. Well, he was one of those guys that was uh, smart. Uh, you know, like to, when things were really bad, like during the Depression and stuff, a lot of the gangsters would support the little guy. You know, they'd, uh, like Pretty Boy Floyd, the song goes, he, he would give Christmas dinners for everyone on relief, set up soup kitchens, you know, all that sort of stuff, which was good thinking on their part because if they were running for the fence, uh, people would hide him. People would help him. Sure. Yeah. Hmm. He died well, of stomach of cancer. To write a positive story. Yeah. Well, yeah. He well, died of stomach. Some that out. Stomach cancer. He died of stomach. It wasn't caused by bullets, was it? No, cancer no. doesn't. <laughs> cancer, <laughs> unless you can get lead poisoning. Yeah. But no, cancer. What caliber was the lead poisoning? 
So he died of stomach cancer. Yes, he did. Eventually. Oh. <clears throat> but he was popular. Like I say, popular enough to be on the cover of Life magazine. Like, like, that, like a movie star. People pick strange heroes. But uh, like that Bonnie and Clyde sort of thing. And they were peculiar too. Robin Banks. But they didn't want to... <laughs> I remember um, Henry Hill noting that that uh, the rest of the world, the nine-to-fivers, were schmucks working for a company and getting a pension. You know, and if you wanted something, just go steal it. Well, that's not a very helpful thought. <laughs> but that was the perspective uh, of the, uh, the group he was with. You know, you wanted it, you know, go steal it, work it out. Go out and shut up. Even even the guys out with the nine to five blue collar workers worked with the whole uh, Jimmy Burke and Henry Hill gang. They, they all worked at the airport. They all gave them tips about all the merchandise coming in, when to rob the truck, when it was coming in. So it's it's not just you know it's an extension of of people you know that are also criminal. Yeah, right. Because everything was an inside job. Same thing that. That, uh, by our buddy Punch, the diamond thief. You know, I saw him uh, interviewed on a, a special that uh, people could have been in the, the uh, jewelry industry were asking him questions. How do we keep from being robbed by someone such as you? And he, one thing he didn't say, and I kind of chastised him about it, I said, Punch, you didn't mention to them that every time you robbed one of these jewelry manufacturing firms, they were in on it. <laughs> you know, it's like, gee, did you hear about the horrible fire I had at the clothing company? No, when was that? Next Tuesday. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the same yeah. it, because it was such a good deal. The, sure, uh, it's, the insurance it's they not had. Even a they, they just give them access to the merchandise and then they claim it on the insurance. Yeah, and the insurance said that they get paid full retail value of what's stolen within two weeks. You couldn't sell yep. your inventory in two weeks. Exactly. But the insurance company will pay you full, full uh, retail in two weeks. Yep. So they're so happy to get robbed. <laughs> oh boy, did that help my cash flow? Can you do it again? <laughs> so, but he didn't mention that. He didn't say, well, if you don't want to get robbed, just tell us. <laughs> we won't rob you. Or otherwise, we'll assume you want to get robbed because you like it. <clears throat> so we, we mentioned the, the chili pimping in New Jersey. Yeah. Uh, or was it Atlantic City? Atlantic City. No, you know, chili pimping in, yeah. In Atlantic City? Yeah, one of the two. Uh, uh, he he, jo he yeah, wanted Gordine. to join the police specifically to enhance and improve his criminal activities. <laughs> that was the only reason to join the police department. Uh, I, I know, you, I, I'm I hoping. And he said uh, he learned about myself and my partner in an academy class, and he held us up as a role model. So when, when you joined, did you have more altruistic uh, tendencies when you decided to join? Well, you wanted to be a cop, right? A good cop. When I joined? Yeah. No, I, I had all the legitimate you know, uh, reasons. I was, I was doing construction as a teenager with my dad. 
and I did not want that job. And him as a construction worker, he had you know uh, no real uh, retirement. He had to work until he was you know Social Security age. But he had a lot of friends that were city employees, cops, firemen, sanitation workers, and they all had twenty year pensions. So he was directing me in that that uh, way, and I took the test, and I did well, and I passed, and uh, I was hired right away. Well, that's great, especially if you get that pension. And the insurance yeah, it was, is it good. It was all about you know getting a, a, a job that was going to be a secure future for myself and a, you know future family. It had nothing to do with being a criminal. No. Well, you approached it the proper way. He approached it from a different direction. Right. Well, yeah. he, was, he was already a, a criminal prior to that, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He became, yeah. Well, he had an uncle who did real well during, I guess, some New Jersey riots. He had a whole bunch of cool stuff. <laughs> he said, wow, I'm going to be a cop so I can get some cool stuff, too. Yeah. Well, so that's like the, uh, the mafia stuff. He supposedly he had, he had uh, you know, connections in the mafia before he became... A cop, and he became a cop, and then he had all those connections, and he started doing work on both sides of the law. Yeah, not a good idea. <laughs> the sooner or later, one side or the other is going to get pissed off. Exactly. Both sides looking at Both sides. They can shoot each other in the middle. You get out of the way. <laughs> but uh, is there's always a what's the the line that at the beginning of the book that we did with you, "Betrayal in Blue," available now wherever fine books are sold. Or is it that he, uh, there's no difference between being a humble workman or a renowned tyrant? Everyone's placed at a post of honor. And it doesn't matter whether you're a big shot or a small fry, it's the same ethical question. You know, do you do it right or do you do it crooked? You know? And it's not a difference. There's no difference whether it's a small guy doing a small <laughs> theft, you become crooked or a big tyrant. It's the same principle of ethics. Everyone's placed at a post of honor. And uh, you try not to desert that post. Sometimes you get a gun put to your head or your ribs. But otherwise, it's a, it's a choice, not an echo. <laughs> but we all get tempted. There's always temptations. Lord knows I've been tempted. I've known a few temptresses in my time. Sure. Uh, the level of temptation too could could slay you. Yeah, unless it smells real bad, like that one that uh, Dowd had <laughs> the patrol car. That's <laughs> a different kind of temptation. Could be beat by the four tops. No, and um, for the most part, my, um, your your in air quotes average criminal isn't the smartest uh, of the bunch. Some are very bright, as I think uh, Ken will agree. He's worked with, well, I think that someone such as Adam Diaz is very bright. Would you agree with that, Ken? Absolutely. Coming from, coming from nothing and worked his way up. You know, he was a street corner dealer for, for a long time. And then, uh, you know, eventually at the top of the business, making multi-million dollars every week. Yeah, I always had so the impression that's, that's that he was... a businessman. He, might, he could have probably grown out in the legitimate industry and, and you know, been uh, a big-time guy. Yeah, I had that impression, too. These guys are obviously smart. And even though he was dealing with an illegal substance, he was an incredibly ethical businessman. He knew how to treat the customers right and do things well. I think people admired him for that and probably still do. 
And I thought it was very nice that he, when we were doing the book, that he, he took the time and the effort to call in and, uh, and speak with us to make sure that we had things right in the book. And uh, I thought that was a, a real stand-up thing to do. I'll tell you, <laughs> the, on the book we're doing right now, we gave uh, someone the opportunity to speak up. And we told the lawyer, listen, well, the guy could say whatever he don't Oh no, he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to hear about it. Doesn't want to get anywhere near the topic. He doesn't want to say a word. It'd be smarter if he did. So that's basically how I ended up doing the documentary and the book. It was either you tell your story or someone's going to tell your story for you. Yeah, and so you might screw it up. You might as well step up and, and yeah, exactly. Someone else could screw up the story. I mean, even with us telling the story. There's, there's so many hours and hours of hours of tape. We have to squeeze it all into 90 minutes, so it's still somewhat misrepresented. Yeah, yeah. People are always going to get something wrong or misunderstand something. Uh, that's just 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 the way it goes. That's the way it is. Yeah. But at least you're still alive. <laughs> Thank God. Exactly. Which gives you the Same opportunity. Things end up a lot worse. Yeah. So it gives you the opportunity to clarify. You know. Um, in fact, uh, where is it in the? Uh, oh, in the you get mentioned in the new book, by the way. Uh, oh, do I? Yeah, you get mentioned because uh, Punch is, uh, is talking about snitches and rats, and he says that you get accused of being a rat when you're not. He says, and even uh. though it's been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're not, that Kenjarella's not a rat, he wasn't a snitch. He still gets, you know, heat from people who don't know any better. Yeah. Still get hit with the tagline. It's, it's, it's again, like we talked about it earlier. It's a, it's a blurry line for for people that have not been in this situation. So I'm all right with it. Whatever words aren't going to hurt me. Yeah, but uh, we just thought. I mean, he made a point of mentioning that because we were talking. Because he said, like, when when he was arrested, said he could have walked if he would have. You know, rolled over on his parents, his uncle. I mean, if he would have rolled over on everybody, he, you know, yeah, I, he would have walked in. I, that was it. But he didn't. I, I could have cooperated many years and, and rolled and been a snitch. You know, every time they called us in for an investigation, we just breezed through it. So no, no one slipped all those years. At the end, even after my arrest, I didn't cooperate for another two months after my arrest. It wasn't like all of a sudden, you know, I was arrested and the next day I was cooperating. Yeah. I didn't cooperate until that, that kidnapping plan came up. Yeah, there's one thing when all of a sudden they say, hey, I got a swell idea, let's kidnap and kill this lady. Or we'll kidnap her and then she'll get killed. Go, so, well, that kind of drove my line. I draw a line there. You know, there's this <laughs> thing about murder that is very antisocial. <laughs> and we, we don't do that. There's, 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 there was no. I just wanted it to be done and over with. I wanted to go do my time. I don't want to be all wrapped up in, in another thing. Really, it, it, yeah. once I find out about the kidnapping in a murder plot, even as many times as I told them, no, 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 I'm not doing that, and that went on for weeks before I ended up going into the U.S. Attorney's office and said, look, and, and I didn't even work the U.S. Attorney. They approached us. They want to know about my time back on the job. Mm -hmm. So, and then I, almost as an episode, I told them about the kidnapping and murder plot. And they went, oh, <laughs> there's something about kidnapping and murder always gets people's yeah. attention. 
And since it was ongoing, that's when, you know, they want to mean, okay, now you're a cooperating witness. We have to know all about this. Because even if I said no, this was going ahead with the plan. The no, plan yeah. was already in place. So there was still, <coughs> it could have happened. But she didn't get kidnapped. She didn't get murdered. No, thankfully, you know, we got the BBA uh, yanked her out of the house the night before we went there to do it. Thank God. Thank somebody who yeah. yanked her. It's good to be out of there. So, but did you ever get a thank you letters from her? <laughs> no, I never did. No, she never said thank you. No. Uh, she only knew. Maybe she did know. Maybe, maybe she know she knows somebody gave her and pulled her out. Yeah, you know, it's not like the DEA just finds out these things on their own. Yeah, that's true. What are they? So she knows somebody pulled up. But uh, she probably—I don't even know if she recognizes her own story when she watches the documentary, huh. if she ever watched it. Huh. Well, she's probably alive somewhere. Going, boy, am I lucky to be alive? Yeah, right. <laughs> a lot of people are lucky to be alive. Who wouldn't you be alive. especially, Pearl. Yeah, me especially. Myself, myself and my partner are both lucky to be alive. Who knows if we would have, if I would have agreed with him and went in on that plot, working with three Colombians. Oh boy! You think they're going to let us walk away as witnesses? Oh no, no, they're not big on having witnesses live. Exactly. And you, you rightly I mean, picked up. I'm surprised that Michael didn't go. Oh no, they don't let witnesses live. But uh, he, he was, you know, not thinking straight with all the cocaine he was doing. And he, even in the in the documentary, you hear him say in the interview, in his mind, he was going to work his way around getting getting that, go out of going in prison by doing this plot. Huh. That's weird. So, and he was thinking about continuing crime, and I was thinking about, no, we're done. Let's go in and do our time. Yeah, so he did time. You did you did less time because of your situation, but uh, you had to build a new life, find a new job. Absolutely, yeah. Was it hard finding a new gig? Not really, no. Because back when I was arrested in '92, there's there was really no internet. Nobody doing deep background checks. We went back to blue collar work, and uh, you know, you get hired and you do your job. He didn't say, what, what did you do before? Oh, I was uh, working with the Dominican drug cartel. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't put that uh, Adam Diaz as a reference? No, he, uh, he, was in, he was in international transportation. Oh, yeah. And he was transporting things internationally, all right. It was an import-export. Yeah, an import-export business. Yeah, well, when I was in high school, I was a packaging engineer. Were you? Yes, yes. At the local, Howard, local Hughes Market. You're packaging engineer. Yes. <laughs> the box boy. Box boy. Pa yes, that's what it on there. Pa packaging engineer. It's well, all about how you sell it. That's right. That's what Oscar Schindler said. It's all in the presentation. And he was right. You know? Uh, even if you're selling snake oil. He really did used to sell snake oil. Did you know that? That's where the expression snake oil salesman comes from. They actually sold snake oil. Oh, wasn't made old, old medicine man. Yeah, it wasn't made from real snakes, however. Any more than Girl Scout cookies are made from real Girl Scouts. As Wendy, when as yeah. Wednesday Adams asked, that's right. <laughs> are there any real Girl Scouts in your cookies? <laughs> <laughs> I should be so lucky. 
So uh, I know life has been kind of difficult for you since the passing of your beloved. Yeah, that was, a, like I said, you know, after my arrest, I came down here, started life all over again, and uh, now back in February, over three months ago, my life is have to start over again because my life is away very suddenly. Yeah, that was a tragic situation. I was uh, really shocked to hear about out of, that. Out of nowhere, no issue of illness, nothing. Went to work one morning, gave each other a kiss goodbye, and that was it. That was it. Yeah, you never know. Life is very precious, and you never... We always say time is the only thing we got. We never know how much. Yep. So, uh, That's true. So, but I have to start all over. I can't, I, and my personality, I can't just roll up in a ball and go lay in the corner. I got to uh, you know, move forward. And I think she would want that, too. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. She'd slap you silly if you curl up in a corner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, went, she was a toughie. My father had passed away a few months prior to that, and we were actually talking about that. You know, what are we going to do? Uh, start making plans for, for our own life if one of us goes. Yeah. So we had talked about it a lot just prior to her death. Well, it's good that you did. Yeah. You had that in your mind. My daughter's always nagging me because I've almost gone to the great beyond a couple times. In fact, most recently, someone uh, Flagged her down and said, Anea, Anea, been trying to get a hold of and let you know your dad died. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. But they brought him back. <laughs> but in that ten seconds between when they said your dad died and they brought him back, imagine what's going on. My daughter's falling apart, right? Yeah, y- your grandmother's on the roof. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, they did bring me back. Which was sister. Well, we're day. talking about uh, about death too. Uh, there was another uh, cast member of the Seven Five cast. I don't know if you guys know about that. They yeah. talked about it in one of my podcasts. No, uh-uh. the IAD officer from Bowie passed away. Oh, sixty-nine years old. Sixty-nine. That's too young. In January. Yeah, January sixty-nine. And my wife was only 53. That's way, way, way too young. That's true, right? Yep. Way too young. Well, as I say, life's full of surprises and so's death. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not, I don't know how looking forward I am to it. I, you know, I always feel, I say, I feel bad about being dead. <laughs> uh, like I'm, I'm with my daughter a lot now. And uh, like any dad, I like to see my kids well situated. And she went through a real bad patch. And trying to get things kind of stabilized. And I think, boy, if I if I drop dead now, she's really going to be screwed. You know? So I'm trying not to. Yeah, you try to get all the affairs in order and everything like right. that. So. Yeah, but like I say you never know, so you just got to do the best you can with what you got. And if you're not prepared, it doesn't come easy afterwards. Because uh, banking and social security, they don't make it easy for you to get everything straightened out after your loved ones pass away. No, they don't. Just because of bureaucracy. So lovely. But thank God. I'd, I always get a kick out of the guy during the election. I don't want the government messing with my social security. Well, where the hell do you think it comes from, you idiot? <laughs> just, uh, you know, just make sure that you have extra copies of the death certificate. Yeah. Well, well, the, the funeral home actually was very helpful. Yeah. Uh, well, so we get a situation like a taste for murder. We're also available Dubai, <laughs> where oh, yeah. she calls up the medical examiner and says, 
how come I don't have a death certificate on my husband's death? He said, because we can't figure out why he's dead. He's in perfect yeah. health. Except he's dead. <laughs> well, didn't, she, uh, didn't she poison him with some flowers from the side of the road or something? Well, she tried that, but that wasn't strong enough. She finally put, oh, it wasn't working. don't try this at home, put uh, antifreeze in his Gatorade. Little ethylene oh, glycol yeah. clear your pipes yeah, up. Yeah, it tastes sweet anyway. She put that in his Gatorade, that's what killed him. Well, they don't run yeah. tests for... Uh, that's, that's been done a couple of times by a couple of black widows. Yeah. I, I think medical examiners are onto that now. It shows up uh, crystals in the kidneys. Yeah, well, they didn't used to know how to test for it, so they didn't test for it. But what held up the death certificate was the guy was in great health. There was no reason yeah. for him to be dead. They checked everything. He didn't die of anything. He was just dead. And they couldn't figure it out. And that's why she couldn't get the death certificate. So she said she was so eager for the money. She said, well, maybe someone poisoned by poisoned him by putting antifreeze in his Gatorade. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> what an interesting cut. <laughs> that's how she, yeah. ca- she caught well, herself. It's funny how she knew that. Yeah, she caught herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she helped the police as a special investigator. To, and uh, She investigated and discovered she did it. So... <laughs> Uh, I worked for uh, an uh, auto insurance company here in L.A., long since moved somewhere else. And we had some of the most interesting clientele. One particular individual was hired to uh, kill somebody. He accomplished the task, put the body in the trunk of his car, and set the car on fire in an attempt to destroy the evidence. Mm. He's in jail. He gets his one phone call. Does he call an attorney or a friend or bail bonds? He calls the insurance company and asks when he will get his check. Oh, God. <laughs> for, the, for, you know, for, his, for his car so he can make that it. That is bizarre. <laughs> that really is bizarre. That is... That's really amazing thinking. That's a good book for your next book. Yeah. All these these calls from jail are recorded. So you pick all the best recordings from jail where people fuck up. That's a great idea. I want a percentage of that if you guys do that book. I'll discuss that with Frank. You guys could get it. That would be a good book. That would be interesting. But, But how many of those are there, I wonder? I want to get my check oh my for God. burning the body in the car for the burned car to pay my bail for murdering, murdering the guy I put him in, in the, the car I burnt oh up. Oh, God. That's so these, these people call, call, you know, <laughs> uh, call up the people that, that are at home from jail, and they re- some of them realize that it's being recorded, and they think they're talking in code. Yeah. But obviously, the investigators to figure out there's a little weak code because <laughs> they're speaking... Big Latin. Ken, thank thanks for joining thank us today. Thank you, Ken. Great as always. Thanks for filling the in. book, Betrayal in Blue by Ken Urell and Francis Jr. and somebody else. Buy it, believe uh, it, so read it, use it as a doorstop or a paperweight. Yeah, they don't care. Just buy, buy the, the book. book. We don't care if you read or not. Just buy it. Buy it. They make books. Make great bookies. <laughs> That's right. Thanks again, Ken. Hey, girl, what what silliness is next? What silliness is next? Magic Night Out on the Demons of Decadence, live from the Light Up Lounge, and Outlaw Radio Live.com.
Take that napkin in here. No, no, take the napkin.